Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revolution's struggles continued this week with a 2-0 loss at home to the MLS champion Atlanta United. Ezekiel Barco was the lone goal scorer in the game, finding the net in the 29th and 49th minute, while the Revolution offense once again was MIA. With the loss, the Revolution now sit all by themselves at the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings, standings with four points through seven games. Here to break it all down, I'm Greg Johnstone, and as usual, Sean Donahue is here with me. Sean, how's it going? I'm still trying to wake up after uh, being bored to death for that Revolution performance on Saturday. Uh, you know, another home game in which the Revolution managed a total of one shot on target. Uh, pretty, pretty boring, huh? <laughs> yeah, not not exactly the most thrilling soccer. I will say there were at least some chances. All unfortunately, uh, one side of the field and for the visitors' side. But hey, we'll we'll hop right into it. Uh, what was your key takeaway from this match, Sean? Yeah, I mean you can't read too much into the fact that they're defending MLS champs because they've been a horrible team this year under Frank DeBoer with the the coaching change. And you know you just look at the lineup that Atlanta's put out there, and it's been. Um, you know, all over the map, the tactics have changed this game, you know, Michael Parkhurst was playing right back. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't recall seeing that in a a very long time. You know, harkens back to the days where he was getting minutes for the U S national team and they were putting him out of position there. Um, so, you know, this has not been, this is not the same Atlanta United team, at least, you know, tactically. Um, and of course they don't have Miguel Almiron anymore either, uh, as they were last year. Um, this was, I believe this was Atlanta's first win of the season actually too. So it just, you know, goes to show that, um, you know, coming into new England, this wasn't an Atlanta team that was, you know, riding high after winning the championship last year. But the, you know, my biggest takeaway goes back to, to something you said, and that was talking about the, the depth along the back line. Um, and you can talk about the, how bad the offense has been, you know, all day long. And we've talked about it a lot. Um, but in this game, to me, the, the, the real focus was the back line because, you know, what we saw up top has just been fitting with what we've seen all season. Um, and Friedel after the game was talking about how with a number of suspensions and injuries, the revolution had any team in the world would, would struggle. Uh, but it's, it's pretty bad when, you know, yes, you have two, two big injuries. Castillo, Eric Castillo is out. Um, Antonio De La May is out injured. Uh, and then you have the suspension from Mansion for his you know, dumb red card the previous game. Um, and that forces you to play Caicedo, a defensive midfielder at right back, ran and by a guy that was, you know, converted attacking player that had been playing right back for the Revs a lot at left back, moving Andrew Farrell, who's been your right back and a center back, and Annie Baba being the only guy who's in his natural position. You know, yes, three injuries slash suspensions along your back line are, are hard to overcome. Uh, but the fact that the Revolution only had three defenders healthy and available for this game uh, is, is pretty embarrassing for you know, Mike Burns that he went into a season like this with such little de- defensive depth. Um, you know, you could have predicted this month ago, months ago that the Revolution didn't have enough defensive depth. So I'm really not sure what excuse they have to be at this point of the season and, and be putting themselves in that position. Um, and, of course, we'll talk more about Gabriel Somi later. But, uh, you know, you could have put him out there at left back and then the only guy playing out of position would have been Andrew Farrell. Um, and it's just, you know, it really brings the question again of, of what he's doing on the roster. If a game like this, uh, he's not out there because the back line, um, you know, Andrew Farrell made some mistakes on that first goal, but he had a, one was one of the best players out there uh, playing out of position. So it, it's just kind of shocking that at this point of the season, you have Lewis Caicedo uh, starting at right back um, just because you have a couple of defensive injuries and a suspension. Um, you know, yes, it's difficult to overcome, but that's just, you know, there's no excuse for, for what we saw out there in that lineup. Yeah, and not only was Somi not in the starting lineup, but he wasn't even on the bench. They opted to go with uh, Matt Turner as the goalkeeper on the bench and then six midfielders slash attacking options. So I don't know what would have happened in the event of, say, a Jaleel Anibaba red card, which was a very real possibility in the middle of the game. Which he should have um, had. <laughs> which, yeah, it really should have been a red card. I, I, I don't I, think there's a lot of disputing it. It was really confusing that 
he did not see a red for that one. That was a pretty reckless challenge. But I, I expect a suspension. So De La Maya better be getting back healthy soon. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you on that one. And and we kind of talked about too in the very beginning of the season, game one, when Mancian went out injured, they didn't have any defenders available on the bench. That you know, it, it's a pretty glaring weakness that they don't have a lot of depth along the back line, which is pretty stunning too, considering that last season um, and going into this off season, the one thing that we felt they needed to address was the back line, and they really didn't do that at all. Um, talking about Somi specifically, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, he made, he made the bench last week. And so what has happened between last week and this week where your backline situation gets significantly worse and then you drop Somi from the 18 still, you know, even, even though you're down one more defender. Um, I, don't, I, I mean, I'm sure Friedel will say that, you know, he had a bad week of training and whatever. O- OK, I'm sure that's that's going to be the, the main line there. But I don't know. It, it's pretty crazy to me that you have one available uh, reserve defender and you don't even include him uh, in the 18. Meanwhile, you know, Nicholas Firmino, you know, I'd love to see Firmino in a game just to see what we have in him there. But what is the situation in which Firmino is coming in? I, I can't think of a single scenario in which Nicholas Firmino is coming into this this soccer game. So a bit of a, a strange decision there. They're really, really stretched out then. Hopefully they, they ha- do have De La Maya coming back next week. Hopefully they do get Edgar Castillo back. But um, yeah, I mean, the lack of depth along that back line really, really punished them last week. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say as far as why Somi was in the 18 last week and wasn't this week is because the Revolution had so little depth last week that I I think if I was you know looking at the roster correctly, it came down to whether or not Firmino or Somi traveled. And last week, you know, you, you don't have Firmino travel because he's getting opportunities to play for the U19s and get minutes instead of sitting on the bench. So if I were to, to go out on a limb, and I don't think it's you know too far of a stretch to, to say this, I think the only reason Somi went last weekend was because it made more sense for Firmino to stay back and actually play. Um, and of course, when they're at home this week, uh, as a different equation. <laughs> it's really telling that Somi didn't make the bench in this game. Um, but you know what? I've been harsh on Somi all season long and all last season. Um, I don't think he's a good enough player for this team. Uh, but I, you know, even with that said, I have trouble um, seeing how playing Caicedo at right back and playing Brandon Bay at left back um, left the Revolution in a better position than playing Somi at left back and playing uh, Bay at right back because, you know, Caicedo had a bad game. I, I thought yeah. Caicedo, you know, was... was Along just as bad, if not worse, than some of the games we saw from Somi last year. You know, he completed fifty percent of his passes, which is just absolutely terrible. Um, and you know, I talked about Somi, you know, completing around sixty in a lot of games last year, and you know, in the fifties sometimes. But um, it, it, I, I just don't get it. If Somi can't play in this game, if he can't make the eighteen in this game, uh, you know, what are you doing wasting four hundred thousand dollars plus of salary cap space on him? What are you doing wasting international roster spot on him when you could have bought him out before the season? And, and yes, you know, you're taking a hit in the bank account paying out a salary, um, but you would have saved that international roster spot. You would have saved the salary cap space. They could still buy him out now, but they're not saving the salary cap space if they do. Um, and they may be forced to do so if they try to sign two international guys this summer. Yep. No, and and I forget who it was on Twitter that you replied to uh, yesterday, but someone made the point that there aren't a lot. There's one international roster spot and two roster senior roster spots available in general. Um, so there, there really isn't a lot of room they can do in terms of bringing in players without sending out some players. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of maneuver this roster going forward. Um, doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of hope, and, and hopefully the one acquisition they bring in is a big one. Um, you know, some someone maybe a little bit better than Andy Carroll, but uh, you know, it's not looking great at the moment. Um, I, I'm I'm gonna kind of 
be negative about the other side of the field and kind of talk about this lackluster offense that is continuing to struggle. Seven shots last week, one shot on target. They did find the net, but it was on an offside goal uh, by Dewan Jones, which is really unfortunate because I was really excited for a Dewan Jones goal. Uh, I, I think he's actually played pretty well so far in the minutes we've seen for a, a guy that really we didn't have a whole, whole lot of expectations coming from. But um, that one shot on target also by the other super draft pick, Teo Bien, um, who came in late in the game and, and fired a decent shot on net. It was right at Guzan. But um, really not a whole lot of chances for the revolution. Um, I, I tweeted out that Teo Buchanan is the first revolution forward to get a shot on goal uh, because he is listed as a forward on the revolution website. Sean, you will uh, argue with me that the revolution still don't have a shot on goal by a striker because uh, Buchanan was playing the wing at the time of the shot on goal. So that streak is still alive. There's no shots on target uh, for a striker this season. Um, just to give you the complete list of players who have uh, got a shot on goal. Carles Hill has six shots on goal. Diego Fagundes has three shots on goal in 252 minutes, and he's not in the starting lineup, so he's second on the team in sh- shots on goal, just for perspective. Uh, Christian Pena, another guy that's rotated in and out of the lineup, has two shots on goal. So does Jalila Anibaba, uh, not only not only a rotation player, but a center back. Uh, Brandon Bai has two shots on goal. Tayon Buchanan, Dewan Jones, and Edgar Edgar Castillo, oh, Edgar Castillo and Scott Caldwell all have one shot each. In total, that's 19 shots on goal through seven games. I believe four of those games are at home. I don't remember off the top. I had. I'm pretty sure it's four home games, and you're you're still averaging less than three shots on target per game. Um, they're not challenging goalkeepers right now. Um, I, I can give the defense a bit of a pass because it was a makeshift back line. Clearly, that that back line hadn't worked together that much. They seemed to be a little bit out of position all night, and they couldn't really seem to be on the same page. So I'm going to kind of give them the benefit of that, that maybe that was a, uh, you know, one game, you know, do the best you can, hope it hope it works out. Um, but the offense, I don't know what excuses I have anymore for this offense, other than everything they're trying is just not working, and there really isn't a whole lot of creativity there. Um, they can, they, they're, they're, passing the ball in the attacking third. I think there was a stat last week that they were in the top three in MLS in terms of touches within the box or touches within the attacking third, but it's not translating into goals and it's certainly not translating into shots on target. Um, Sean, any, anything you want to add on this uh, miserable offense? No, I, I'm completely with you. And it's funny reading off that, you know, that stat list of the shots. Cause you, you talk about any Baba's two shots on frame. And I think you can make the case that the, the best two shots the revolution have had this season have been Annie Baba between that diving header and that rocketed long shot that was saved from him. Um, so yeah, it really does speak to the fact that the offense is not creating chances. You know, we, we've talked ad nauseum about how the strikers are not putting shots on goal, um, between, uh, Caicedo who now has five shots, not on target. Aguadelo has three shots, not on target. And it's actually pretty shocking that Aguadelo and 300, in 10 minutes has only managed three shots um and Bunbury who has taken 11 shots not on target um it's 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 pretty incredible that we're seven games into the season and and those are the stats we're looking at this offense has just been absolutely putrid at this point you know Heal has been creating chances but it, it's just not enough just for him to be creating all the only chances and it's disappointing that guys like Pania um and Fagundes really haven't found their footing this year and haven't found a way to, to make an impact in the system yeah, uh, Caicedo, too, 0 for 5 on on his shots. Uh, Juan Agadello, 0 for 3 in terms of shots that are on target. And Teal Bunbury, 0 for 11. Uh, I don't think I've, I've been able to com- comment on his uh, ridiculously horrible shot the other day at Columbus. I, I, I'm, I like Teal. I don't know what's going on with him. I, I don't know if it's something mechanically or confidence-wise, but, I mean, every shot he's taken seems to be wildly off. 
So, yeah, I mean, they're not getting any production really from their strikers in terms of finishing chances. Uh, Caicedo, too, with that shot towards the end of the game where he receives the pass perfectly in the box and then just waits a little, like, felt like an eternity over there waiting for someone to come over and dispossess him of the ball. Uh, Very, very frustrating. I'm not entirely sure what's happening up top, but really not a whole lot of positive things you can say about the offense. So I'm not sure how you fix it. I don't know if you go back to placing Fagundes and Pena in the lineup. Um, I'm not sure if it's a confidence issue. I don't know if it's kind of just built up over time, but even Carlos Gil, uh, you know, six for 17 in terms of shot accuracy and getting him on target. Three of them have gone in. So he, he feels like a little bit more of a uh, dangerous threat, but he had a shot that was extremely high uh, last Saturday. So, Really, nothing is clicking for this offense right now. Yeah, and and all three of those strikers between Bunbury, Agudelo, and Caicedo have had good chances. Um, maybe not as many good chances as you'd like to see them have, but all three of them had chances to put the ball in the back of the net where they just haven't done good enough. Um, you know, two weeks ago, I think both Bunbury and Agudelo should have had goals, um, and they they failed to convert. And I think Caicedo had opportunities to to score in this one um, where he just didn't do didn't do good enough. So. Um, you know, you, you look at those guys and it's hard to figure out where exactly to place the blame. Fagundes was, you know, one of the top creators in the league last year, chan- you know, statistically. Um, and of course, Pania was, you know, great guy, great guy for the revolution last year, creating chances for himself and for others. I, I think there absolutely has to be a way for, to find a, at least for one of those two guys to fit into the lineup and con- combine with Carles heel or this offense is going to go nowhere. Um, you know, I didn't think I, th- I was glad to see Pania back in the lineup because I think he needs to be in there, but I didn't think he had a particularly good game uh, uh, this weekend. So there were a few moments where he looked good getting forward, but there just wasn't enough. Um, and, and again, yes, Atlanta was a really good team last year and they've been struggling this year. And, and maybe this was the game where they turned things around and there's, you know, there's undoubtedly a lot more talent on Atlanta United than there is in the revolution. So if they're playing their best, um, it makes sense that the revolution struggle against them. Um, but this has just been a whole season thing now where the revolution offense hasn't been creating enough chances in, in pretty much every game. Yep. Yep. And, you know, Atlanta coming in, as you said, they're struggling a little bit this season. You have a home game. It's early in the year. I think Scott Caldwell called this a critical stretch coming up. Um, you know, that you have another struggling team as uh, the Red Bulls come in next Saturday. I, I, I feel like that has to be three points. I don't know. I don't want to wave the white flag so, uh, already, but there really doesn't seem to be any hope for this team, and they're getting worse and worse. It seems like 1-5-1 and one is not exactly uh, the way you want to start off the year, so... Um, Um, And people joke about the the teams that are around them in the standings right now that it is, you know, at the bottom of the Eastern Conference Revolution are very bottom now, but the teams right above them are New York FC, Atlanta United and the Red Bulls, you know, three of the top teams in the East last year. And to me, that's actually worse for the Revolution because all those teams are, are not playing are playing much worse than they are um, and all those teams have proven they can be a lot better than they are that right now so I think all those teams are going to move their way up the standings and get further away from the revolution um, and there's every reason to believe those teams will get better eventually where there's you know little reason to believe the revolution are going to get better eventually nope I, I agree completely and the type of calendar caliber of team you expect them to compete with the Philadelphia's uh, Columbus Cincinnati etc cetera, etc cetera, Montreal they're all even further up the, the table so I, I think you're right they have a lot of ground to make up if they want to salvage this season um, Sean we actually have a ton of Twitter questions and I think they're going to kind of cover everything we want to talk about in this game so we're just going to hop right into listener questions early this week um, the fans so, are angry <laughs> oh boy and we're going to start off with uh, typically we ask oldest question to newest question depending on when you respond to I, I think we're going to start with talking about the game first and then the uh, overly more negative big picture stuff because there's a lot of it uh, we're going to kind of end uh, on a happy note and kind of address those last so uh, Sean uh, let's get right to it uh, Cobb Braft probably not his real name 
Uh, but he asks us, uh, why do we play better on the road than at home? It's really weird. You know, I think it's really a tactical thing with Friedel. I think the Friedel knows how to get this team to play in a situation where they're counterattacking um, and when they're on the back foot and, and can find those breaks and, and playing as a team that's being more ambitious and more aggressive going forward. When they're at home, uh, the Revolution are expected to be the aggressors, are expected to take charge, hold possession. And it's been clear from day one of Friedel's tenure that this team doesn't know what to do uh, when they have a lot of possession. They don't know how to turn possession into chances. They know how to turn counterattacks into chances, um, which is more suited for you know a road style. Um, but again, I think long-term with this team, um, they're going to be bad on both the road and at home. And the the little bit of road success they've had is, is more of an anomaly than anything. Um, but I do think they're tactically, their style suits them better uh for road games when they're supposed to be you know on the back foot and finding a way to counterattack them for home games when they need to be the aggressor yeah it's almost like the more possession they have the more they're leaving themselves open for a counterattack and that's kind of where the defense occasionally just completely falls to pieces um so yeah i, I agree with everything you said there the other thing too i, I want to point out is i don't actually think they're much better on the road than at home uh just looking at records right now they're uh one and three at home uh, and they're 0-2 and 1 on the road. So three points at home, one point on the road. Um, I, I think it just feels better that they're on the road because we have such lessened lessened expectations uh, compared to when we're at home and we're expecting three I think, points. I think with, where you could make the case is that Toronto game, the Revolution looked decent in even though they lost and they had some you know, hard luck with that weird uh, deflected ball that was you know the goal that wasn't offside that you know you could yeah. argue should no, have been offside and then the columbus game i think that was the one where the the goal was offside that didn't get called and you know the the effort was there at least in all three of the road it was games, just I think the VAR. Said, yeah and yeah, all three of those games and i you know i'm not going to blame var and the refs for why the revolution have been so poor this year because it's a lot more than that um but i do think you can make a case that they have you know there there are three road games and all of those games they were in the game and could have at least gotten away with the draw uh where a lot of these home games it, it hasn't been competitive no, no. Although, I, as I say, I think last week I'm going to give them – I don't want to give them too much of a pass. But I think that game plays a little differently if that back line is healthy. I, I can't – I mean that, that that back line was just begging begging to be scored on. Uh, so I, I, The other thing I'll say here is that if, if Joseph Martinez was playing at, at his best, this game could have been a lot more of a blowout oh, for this, United. Oh, that's very true. That, that's very true. But I guess my, my point is, you know – why do we play better on the road than at home? I, I think they're really bad in both. I, I don't mean to. I don't mean to kind of pick hairs about where they play better. I just think this is an all-around bad team. Is that a fair assessment? I, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent with you, but I will say that if the Revolution were playing well at home, their performances on the road would be an acceptable level of play um, for going out on the road. It's just the fact that they've been so terrible at home that the fact that they've been less terrible on the road um is you know is not particularly comforting um but, but just harping on this last game for a second i think it's hilarious that frank DeBoer said they could have won it seven to one so and i actually not if, if if the two red cards that the revolution deserved had gone to them and if joseph martinez had finished his chances he's probably not wrong yeah well, actually i think frank DeBoer is way off because i don't know where he thinks the revolution would have scored one that game good point. it should have been seven if it was seven nothing i think that's a more realistic uh scenario but um yeah seven one he is vastly overestimating the revolution there <laughs> um <laughs> moving on uh we have a uh, kaiseido 2 question uh jfc is really slow uh well, well actually uh, mj has a, a number of questions that we can kind of all address at once but uh, jfc is really slow 
A mannequin would be more effective than Zahibo, and Cropper's angles were very shaky, and he was lucky Joseph had an off game. Having said that, at least Friedel tried various adjustments, which has been my main criticism criticism of him. Uh, it does appear the Revs were outclassed and don't appear to have the horses to compete. I don't know where you want to tackle first, but I'll let you you, you kind of dissect away, Sean. I mean, I, I honestly can't disagree with any of that. Um, the only thing I'll say for, in Cropper's case was that um, he did make a few you know questionable decisions when he ran out of the box, but um, I do think he you know got lucky that Joseph Martinez wasn't on it, but also he made some good saves later on in the game to kind of make up for his, his shakiness a bit. Um, and I certainly don't think he can get much blame for either of the two goals they conceded. Um, but w- with that said, there's not much in this comment that I can disagree with. Um, although I, I don't know that Brad Friel's adjustments have been the adjustments that um, I would have made had I been in his position. And I don't think the adjustments to, you know, take guys like Pania and Fagundes and put them out in the, in the cold for, for a couple games uh, are, are the way to fix this offense. Yeah, and I kind of said before the season, too, it seems to be a more flexible roster, which will allow Friedel to kind of make changes week after week and kind of adjust depending on the opponent that they play. It seems like every adjustment he makes kind of backfires um, or at least seems to be getting a little bit worse. And I'm not really sure what this team has right now. I don't know if maybe he's overthinking things and he needs to kind of make it a little more simplistic to what they did a little bit more last year or, or what's going on. But, um, yeah. Not 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 going great. I will say about Cropper, too, I, I think he did pretty well. We actually have a question from James Downing. He wanted our thoughts on Cropper's performance. He says, uh, not much you can do when you're constantly one-on-one with some of the best attackers in the league and still have big, uh, still have uh, five big saves. Um, I, I think Cropper did pretty well. I think he earned another start next week. He had a nice leg save there um, in the second half. Uh, he, he, he did enough to keep it, uh, to keep the refs in the game, sort of, if they had a competent offense. Uh, so I, I think Cody Cropper... I give him passing marks. He was one of the few people in the field that I think did pretty well. There were a couple of shaky plays. I think the Joseph Martinez kind of scuffed shot with the open goal um, early in the first half kind of sticks out as a bad play by Cropper. Um, But overall, I I don't think Cropper had a bad game at all. Did did you know he completed 19 of 20 passes in this game? It's pretty good. You you love your goalkeeper distribution stats. I mean, I don't have high expectations for a goalkeeper's passing accuracy by comparison to a field player, but the best passer on the field percentage-wise in this game was Cody Cropper, which is pretty shocking. I say we move Matt Turner back in goal and put Cropper at the kind of 10 position, kind of put him in the center of the field, pair him with Carlos Hill. Um, can't be any worse than what we have. The only pass that Cropper... Cody Cropper or a striker? <laughs> you know, I, I think they should put Cody Cropper at striker. He's got a good boot on him, and the, the only shot that... Or the only pass that he missed in this game actually, I think, landed in, like, the eight-yard... About eight yards out from the opponent's goal, so... <laughs> um, let's complain about the back line here, Sean. Um, Marcos Aguilar asks us, uh, what were other options Friedel could have used in the back this game? I understand lacking depth, but Caicedo at right back, by at left back, could not have been the best back... Uh, best best option for the back line. Um, switch to a three five two question mark. Um, I, we we've kind of talked about putting in Somi and kind of shifting by over to the right side. But do you think a three five two might have worked out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think it would have. I think that this lineup against Atlanta, I think they needed a four man back line. Um, if you were going to play a three five two, you would have needed more of I think wing back X players. So it would look more like a you know five three two um, to really compete with with what Atlanta has. Um, you know, again, it comes down to me, to me, it comes down to, you know, Somi 
needed to play in this game if he has any ability at all to play at the professional level at left back. Um, and I think the Revolution would have been better off if they had Caicedo in midfield over Zahibo, um, which again would have been possible if Somi had played. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think a 3 5 2 is the answer in this game. Um, and I do think that the most shocking part of this is how little depth the Revolution have on the back line, thanks to, you know, Mike Burns and Brad Friedel's failure to go out there and, and get guys in the offseason to fill those spots. Um, but I'm not sure Friedel could have done much more if, if he's completely unwilling to play Somi. Yeah, and I don't know if you have a 3 5 2, I don't know who your third kind of center back is there. You're going to have Farrell, you're going to have Annie Baba. I guess you'd move Zahibo back there. And then he's out of place. And uh, I don't know, it, it seems like a bit of a mess. Probably they really worse don't off. have a whole lot of options. What? Sorry. You're probably worse off if you have to do that. Yeah, I, I, I understand the logic. I, if if De La Mayo was available, maybe you could fit him back there. But I'm not, I, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a tricky situation because I don't know. You, you do seem exposed. And, and as you say, I, I think you need a more of a 5-3-2. And, and you have Somi. You could put Brandon by on the right side. I think those two would function pretty decently as wingbacks that don't have to worry too, too much about getting back and defending. Um, but as I say, I, 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 they're lacking a third competent center back there. Um, and I think that the results would not have been, uh, would not have fared a whole lot better. So um, I, I, I guess you could have just stuck with a four man back line, stick Somi in and move by to the right. I think that was the correct answer if there was one. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I, I wasn't a big fan of Luis Caicedo playing right back. I know that they kind of hyped that up throughout the week that he could do it. And on paper, I, I think it might have uh, – he might have had the potential to work out, but uh, he didn't seem comfortable in that spot all game. No, not at all. And I, I think that's something that needs to not happen going forward. And there's there's got to be you know some depth piece the Revolution can add to the back line, even now as a free agent that would put them in a better position than, than they are right now because it's just you know kind of incredible – um, the situation they're in, and they could be in just as bad of a situation next week if, if De La May doesn't recover. Because I, I do expect that Any Baba is probably going to get a suspension um, for that tackle that he, you know, got away without getting a red card on. And and, Cald- and, and Caldwell could you know, could be due for a, uh, a a heavier punishment too for the the play that That's he true. got away with. Yep, yep. Uh, should be fun. Uh, bring back trialist um zach rhyme uh he we, we've kind of already addressed this but he ba- he's baffled about how somi is still with the team uh but they didn't give him a chance in the starting 11 castillo out but friedel opts to put caicedo at the wing back position instead help me in figuring this one out um we don't know i, I think that's kind of fair sean right yeah there's, there's no help here other than they're they're cheap and they're trying to find a way to let him go on a free rather than buying out his contract um but otherwise it's, it's baffling well, the other thing, too, is you'd think if you wanted him to go on a free, why not put him in, in at left back and kind of let him, you know, perform? Aren't you trying to aren't you trying to build up his kind of net worth here and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> show off that he's pretty decent? I, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't one decent performance from Gabriel Somi increase his market value to international teams that, that you could let him go on a free? I, I feel like if there was ever a time to give him a chance to show what he can do and, and show he can put in some valuable minutes, this would be it. But I think by not doing it, I, I think it's kind of just obvious that, you know, they they don't have a whole lot in Somi to do basic, you know, they'd rather have by it left back and Caicedo at right back. I, I think it kind of, I don't know, it says diminishes his value a whole lot. And I don't know who's going to be willing to take on Gabriel Somi if his own team is, is kind of sending that message. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the fact that they're not playing him shows that they have no faith at all of him even putting out a decent performance to increase his value, which is, is pretty stunning. And again, another reason of, you know, why didn't they buy him out before the season started and save his cap space? Yep, yep. 
James Downing asks us, uh, if there was ever a time not to put your back line beyond midfield, it was against Atlanta with their speed and talented offensive players. Yet they did it anyway, and it should have been five to nothing. Why not adjust this tactic? Another great question that I'd like to hear Friedel's answer to. Um, <laughs> yeah, it seems like Friedel only knows a couple ways to play and uh, doesn't really want to deviate from that. And, you know, I guess the, the thought process is when you're at home in a game like this, you want to find a way to boss the game and, and be in control of it and force the other team to adjust to your style rather than adjusting to theirs. Um, but, you know, maybe it was a question of underestimating Atlanta based on how they started this season, um, which is really poorly. Maybe, you know, Brad Friedel watched the game tape and saw Atlanta playing you know really bad this season um, in their early games and expected it to be the same here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's all I, I can really think of on that one. Friedel did make a point too, I think at halftime and at, at, after the game too, where he he kind of made it sound like they wanted to kick long balls up and, and kind of recover balls in the in the in the midfield, and I, I guess maybe they kind of he kind of thought that by and and Caicedo by pushing them forward, maybe they would win more ball, you know, win possession more in the middle third. But I, I don't know, I'm not I'm not sure what the tag. I'm sure there was logic behind it, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, uh, we have another question too here from James Downey. Uh, why did Zahibo start, uh, and is JFC good? He seemed to struggle trying to hold the ball up. His herky-jerky running style doesn't allow him to pressure defenders when they have the ball. Um, let's start with Zebo. Sean, any idea why he started? I think he only started because Caicedo had to play right back because there is no interest in playing Somi. Um, I, you know, Zahibo, I think has you know, had a poor season. Um, I think you know Friedel has recognized that by not playing him in, in recent games. Um, so my again, my only thought here is just out of desperation is why I started this one. Otherwise, it doesn't you know make much sense to me either. Yeah, pick your poisons, Zahibo uh, or Somi. Um, I will say, uh, you know, everyone trashes Zahibo. He was an MLS All-Star last year, so maybe he will return <laughs> to form soon. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, I don't um, know what form that is. <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't really uh, noticeable, which I feel like for Zahibo is, is you know, a positive, uh, considering it seems like whenever there's a goal conceded, Zahibo doesn't cover some space. Uh, Zahibo is kind of, you know, nowhere to be found and is missing an assignment. Um, I, I this probably was one of Zebo's better games, which is really sad to say. Uh, he had 82% uh, pass completion. Um, I, I don't remember any horrible errors that he made. I, I can't think of any at the time, the time being. But um, he did have four ball recoveries. Uh, he was dispossessed twice, one interception, one block shot, um, over two on tackles. Um, kind of just there. Didn't really seem to bring anything positive, but didn't bring anything negative. So I, I – eh. Solid, solid game for Zahibo, I'd say. Um, it's it's a good on. game for Zahibo if you don't see a clearly obvious error on a goal, it yeah, seems like. Yeah, exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. High standards. Exactly. We, we had two questions about him, and I was like, boy, it's he didn't even do anything that horrible this game. Um, but yeah, he, he didn't contribute a whole lot. So I guess on the other side of the coin, it's glass half full, though. He didn't screw up massively. Um, Sean, Caicedo 2, um, is he any good? I think the verdict's still out. I think there were a couple of flashes in this game um, where he showed some potential, and there were a couple of chances in this game where you would have expected a striker of what you hope to be his caliber to have done a lot better with. Um, his running style is weird, as we talked about. Um, he's not the fastest guy on the planet. Uh, but I actually thought there were more positives in this game than I had seen previously, even with the negatives. Um, and I, you know, willing to give him a bit more of a chance to, to show what he can do because you know, Bunbury and, and Agudelo obviously haven't been getting it done. And, you know, I will say, too, he had a, a shot that was blocked, but it seemed like a pretty decent shot. Um, he had a nice little play uh, early in the game when it was 0-0. We kind of had a backheel flick uh, to Pena, who set him up for the run, and then Pena ended up 
diving and kind of killing that chance. Uh, he he so set up Jones too, didn't he? On that offside he did. goal, I was just about to say you were leading. I, I was leading into that one. He set up Jones with a nice uh, pass. He controlled the ball nicely on a throw in. Set up Jones really nicely for that offside goal. So there were some bits and pieces where I think we've seen what, what they see in Caicedo too. Um, then of course on the flip side, he does kind of look awkward running. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Whatever. But he, uh, I I can't get over the play where uh, the ball is perfectly laid to him at his feet and he can't get a shot off from you know eight yards out. Uh, you you got to at least fire that one off. Uh, I, I I don't know. So um, I, still jury's still out for me on him. Uh, I I think he does have a little bit of promise and I think he's got a few more games before they take him out for any reason. I don't think Teal Bunbury or Juan Agudelo showed anything. As promising so far as Caicedo. Again, that's a little sad to say that out loud. But um, yeah, I, I think a little bit more patience. It might be just him adjusting to his teammates. Uh, I, I think he'll get on the, the score sheet eventually. Um, and Sean, one more question here. Uh, thoughts on Caldwell's performance? Decision-making and passing seem to be at sometimes excellent and then at other times so poor that people in the fort were yelling at him. Uh, any thoughts on Scott Caldwell? Yeah, he saw more of the ball than anybody else in this game. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly amazing performance from him, but I also didn't think it was particularly terrible either. Um, I don't think I disagree with that assessment uh, necessarily. I think Caldwell has been one of the Revolution's more consistent players this year. Um, and for him to have a good game but not a great game, um, well, I don't think anyone really had a good game in this one, maybe other than Andrew Farrell. Uh, but I, you know, again, I, I don't think it was a, a highlight reel performance for Scott Caldwell, but I don't think he was particularly bad. And, you know, his passing wasn't as crisp as it always is. But um, otherwise, it is, you know, I'm not worried about Scott Caldwell based on his performance. Moving on to some other uh, underperforming players. Uh, Randy LH asked us last year, Pania and Caicedo were inspirational players. Uh, and even during the bad games, seemed capable of elevating us. What happened? Uh, we also have a question from Mike Kennedy along the same lines. Has Pania regressed, or is it just a slow start? Um, in, in Pania's case, I think he just hasn't found a way. Well, first of all, I think early on in the season, he he didn't find a way to, to fit with uh, Edgar Castillo. Um, Castillo was a guy that kind of got in his way a bit, I think. Um, you know, like to bomb forward, like to get out on the wing and, and kind of invaded Pania's space. Um, and I also don't think he's necessarily hooked up well with, with Carly's heel. Heel's a guy that likes to you know get the ball every time they get forward. And I think the Revolution like to get him the ball every time they're they're in the attack. Um, and Pania, you know, likes to do things himself sometimes because he's capable of doing that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think Pania is necessarily aggressed. Um, I think it's just a question of finding a way to integrate him with, with Heel and, and Castillo. And I don't know what's going to take to make that happen. But, uh, I, you know, there's just too much talent of Pania for him not to be out in the field and for him not to find a way to, to fit in with this lineup. And with Caicedo, you know, he's been in and out of the lineup this year. I believe he was you know hurt at times in, in preseason. That didn't help his case. Um, but, yeah, he, he's been disappointing this year. I kind of write off his bad play at right back because he's not a right back. Um, and, you know, until he gets a, a run out of a couple games at, at his natural position uh, in midfield, I'm I'm not sure I'm ready to hit the panic button on him yet. But, you know, so far he hasn't been impressive this year. Yeah, and, and one more thing I will add on uh, Christian Mania. You know, we, we, we list off players that have shots on goal this season, and we mentioned Christian Mania is tied for third with two. He's also third on the team in shots total. He has eight shots so far this season. Um you know, and as I say, that is over 350 minutes. So um, I, I think Christian Pena is going to 
get it together eventually. I mean, from what we saw at the beginning of last year, I know he kind of slowed down towards the end of the season, and and maybe we're just kind of seeing a continuation of what he uh, of the end of his of the end of 2018 as opposed to the start. Um, but he's too talented of a player, I think, to be kind of kept off of the uh, score sheet for too too long. I think once he starts putting some shots on goal, we'll we'll see a couple goals from him here and there. But he he's too talented for me to. Um, to 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 not produce goals and assists this season. So um, I don't know. I, I have a little bit more patience with him than I do with some other players. So uh, Sandra Lawson asks us, in your opinion, would this team be better, worse, or the same if Diego Fagundes was starting? Uh, also, I don't see a way out of this awful year. Even if Friedel is fired, I don't think we have the horses. Thoughts on best formation slash lineup? Sean, let's start with the Diego Fagundes question first. Uh, would the Reds be better or worse with with him in the lineup? Um, I, I mean, I don't think when he has gotten the chance to start this year, he's been particularly impressive. Um, as I've said before, I think with Pania and Fagundes, you need at least one of those guys to be out on the field and producing for this team to be successful. Um, I do think the most creative guys on the team are Fagundes, Heal, and Pania. And if there was a way you could find the three of them, you know, get the three of them out there and make it work, uh, the revolution would be a lot better off. But, you know, I, you know, I think if... Fagundes is not playing the the 10 role as he did last year. His second best position, or maybe his best position, is left wing, which is also Pania's best position. Um, and, you know, Pania got that one you know bit of time where he played on the right and wasn't too productive um, with Fagundes on the left. And I, I'm just not sure Fagundes uh, is, you know, plays the right wing well enough uh, to be the solution there. But again, um, as good as Juwan Jones has been, he's, he's still a rookie that has you know a lot of weaknesses in his game. His passing isn't as good as it should be. I thought you know Juwan Jones for the first ten minutes of the second half was kind of invisible after he played a you know a good first half. Um, so you know I, I I think the Revolution at their best would find a way to get all three of those guys out on the field. I'm just you know less convinced now that it's possible um, than it was before the season started. And if it's not possible, I think the Revolution are probably better off with Pania on the field than Fagundes on the field. Yeah, this is probably the toughest question because what we've seen from Diego Fagundes is vastly different from the, you know, Diego Fagundes we saw last year where he put in 10 goals and had nine assists, um, you know, and I, I think the spot that he had last year has been taken by Carlos Hill, and I don't think anyone will argue that Diego should be starting over him. So um, I, I would probably say that if I had to choose one, I'd say that the results would probably be the same because when he's on the field, he isn't creating a lot of chances. He isn't doing a whole lot of anything. So, um, I mean, it's tough to say, but I, I don't know where Diego fits on this team anymore. Um, getting to the second question, too, I'll let you have this one, Sean, uh, in a second. But thoughts on best formation lineup? I, I really don't know anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure what the best formation is here. I, I guess right now I would probably uh, just just – Choosing the players uh, above the uh, back line, I'd go with Caicedo two up top. I'd have uh, Carlos Gil uh, kind of in the uh, attacking midfielder role, Pena on the left wing, Jones on the right wing, and then I'd probably say Caicedo and Caldwell. But Luis Caicedo hasn't done a whole lot this year either. Uh, but I can't put Zibo in the lineup, so that that'd probably be my lineup right now. But who knows? I'm not really sure what's the best formation anymore. No, and I, I agree with you on, on everything you said there, um, but it, it's hard to say because again, we don't know you know what Kaise- what Juan Caicedo is still, um, even with the, you know him getting the start in this game and and you know getting a little more time to see what he can do. Um, you know, I'm I'm still not sure what the best lineup is for this team. I think what, whatever Friedel's doing is not working. Um, I think the tactics need to change significantly and you know, not really play this ridiculous high line and and, and press formation at all times. I think they need to find a different way to, to make it work for these guys. Um, but I can't really disagree with your thoughts on the, the front uh, of the lineup. And I think the back of the lineup, you know, 
Andrew Farrell, obviously at right back, Edgar Castillo at left back, and uh, then kind of pick your poison with the center backs because I'm you know not at all convinced that Michael Mancian's not the uh, the worst center back on this roster from what we've seen this season. Yep, yep. Um, Sean, moving on, uh, we're going to move on to kind of more of the big picture questions uh, that are a little more depressing somehow. Uh, but James Downing asked us, where can the Revs get players like Atlanta captain Michael Parkhurst and Jeff Laurentowitz? Yeah, the uh, Rhode Island native Michael Parkhurst and Brown University product Jeff Laurentowitz, both of whom were key players on this Revolution team back when the Revolution were good uh, and the Steve Nichol era when they were making all those championship finals and, and losing all those <laughs> losing all those MLS Cups. Um, you know, it's it's once again a huge shame, and I've talked about this before, that you know both of those were guys that left the Revolution with bad taste in their mouth and, and wouldn't come back here. Um, I know Lorena was, uh, if, you know, if you dig back in the archives, talked about how uh, he was hoping they would give him a contract extension when he was playing really well, but instead they waited to the last minute and, and lived off of his you know dirt cheap rookie contract even when he was way outperforming it, and waited till the very end of that to you know try to offer him an extension. Um, and with Parkhurst, it's you know a bit more unclear what what left him unhappy, but it was clear that he didn't want to come back here when he was coming back to MLS. Um, so you know two local guys, Parkhurst, and that he grew up around here, and Lorena was not, he went to college around here, uh, that the Revolution managed to you know piss off and, and keep from, from ever wanting to come back and play for the team again. It is pretty upsetting, um, because as I've said before, if, if the Revolution had you know kept Michael Parkhurst, uh, or when he came back, you know brought him back to the team all those years ago, uh, their defense would be in a heck of a lot better shape right now um, than it is. So it's, it's it, you know, depressing uh, if you're a Revolution fan to look at those two guys in Atlanta and how well they're doing at such a late stage in their career and, and at this age and know that how many more years the Revolution could have had out of them if they had treated him better. Yep. And there is kind of a stigma we've talked about before. There's a bit of a stigma with New England and how they treat players. Um, you know, obviously the Lee Wynn situation was kind of, uh, a bit of a national story last year too, but we've talked about kind of the reputation that Mike Burns has and New England has about treating players, and um, yeah, it, it's not very positive. Um, so yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I don't think a whole lot of players within MLS want to come to MLS in general, and I think that puts the Revs behind the eight ball in terms of getting out and acquiring new players, and they have to go internationally where it's kind of more of a crapshoot, uh, and it's just a big mess. Um, I will say, too, that we are focusing on Parkhurst and Laurentowitz uh, because those are the obvious solutions, but I do find it uh, a bit ironic that in, in a game where the Revolution desperately need a center back, uh, Atlanta starts uh, Arlington native Miles Robinson, who, if you remember, he went to Syracuse. He was the number two draft pick in 2016, I believe, in the Super Draft, uh, and I believe he could have been a uh, homegrown player for the revolution if they had found him and scouted him so that's another guy that is in our backyard that ended up uh, being a successful mls player uh for a different team so yep yep only gonna get more depressing here sean um moving on Tom, how about uh, pc product julian russell too he would be a nice signing nope yep yep <laughs> just file on ah anyway well uh, to, Tom, to be to be fair on that one the revolution didn't have a pick where they could have got him but i just had to throw that one out there they did try to trade up they did try to trade up uh in the super draft they did i give them a little bit of credit on that one that they did try to uh throw some allocation money and it just did not end up working out so i i, I have half marks for that one but i i just think it's funny that you know, there's a, a Massachusetts native who uh, could have been in the revolution system, and uh, there was a big swing and a miss. So it's, it's uh, incredible that like half of Atlanta's starting lineup is has some tie to New England, though. <laughs> yeah, and Atlanta is pretty good. Anyway, Tom in Rhode Island, uh, your old podcasting buddy, Sean. Uh, first time, long time. Is Juan Agadella going to end up like Kellen and Lee? I'll hang up and listen. So no, uh, because Lee Wynn was playing really well for the Revolution. 
and you know had a contract that another team could easily justify trading for. Um, Kellen Rowe was having a bad year for the Revolution, but had a history in which he you know was you know, making the national team, was on the fringe player on the national team, and also had a you know pretty nice team favorable contract. Um, Juan Aguadello is making what six hundred and five thousand dollars this year, um, and really hasn't been productive in a while. So I think the Revolution are kind of stuck with him. Um, you, you know, actually, if they if they were to trade him, they might have to trade allocation money with him. So I, I actually don't think he's going to end up like Leo and, and Kellen Rowe. I think he's going to suffer a far worse fate of being you know stuck on the Revolution bench, um, making six hundred and five thousand dollars, and not really having a team that wants to pay that kind of money for him. Yeah, we haven't had our segment, why did the Revs re-sign Juan Agudelo in a while? Uh, but it, it this question uh, is a good reason to bring it back. Uh, why did they re-sign Juan Agudelo? I'm not really sure what role he plays on uh, this team. Uh, $600,000 is a good chunk of change to give to a player who's a multi-year deal, apparently. I don't know if there are team options beyond that first year. But, um, I mean, it seems like, you know, we talk about Kellen Rowe has a history. Juan Agudelo had a, had a decent history, but it was... You know, it, it seems like he was like in the, like 21. <laughs> right. The, the, the Kellen Rowe phase for Juan Agadello was two years ago. If you're going to trade him uh, as kind of a guy with upside who, who, you know, you could get some good years out of. I mean, I, I, I mean, Juan Agadello is not, you know, he, he's not father time or anything. He's not an aging player by any, any means. But, uh, yeah, you're right. His market value is far uh, below that six hundred thousand dollar figure. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, where they could ship him off to. Uh, I think the better name here, too, and we've talked about this before, is Diego Fagundes. Diego Fagundes has one year remaining on his contract with a team option, and he's at a very, very low cap number. I, I think he would kind of bring back a Lee Win type of uh, return if you were to shop him around, probably to a Western Conference team, because that's how the Revs do business. Um, I think that's the more fitting name uh, in terms of player that the Revolution kind of ship out uh, unhappily, but... Um, Juan Agadello, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where they go from here with him. So uh, I don't know. Um, do you have anything else to add on that one, Sean, or want to move on? No, I think, I think you're spot on. Okay. Uh, a casual fan asks us, uh, what's the league average percentage of plays attempted that are done intelligently and end up succeeding? <laughs> Appears that the revs are at best making one intelligent play out of every five attempts. Um, I don't have any stats that confirm that, but I would guess that the revs are kind of at the bottom end of the range uh, in, in terms of the MLS or MLS. I did it again. Sean, anything <laughs> to add on that, uh, that note? No, I wish that was a real stat. Cause that would be uh, that'd be fun to say. I, would I, would, to, uh, I, I, I want to see Opta come up with an objective qualification for intelligent plays. Um, but, but no, it's a, it's a, it's a good observation. <laughs> I'd love to see player by player too. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately I, I, I kind of Googled around, but yeah, I gave up after a few minutes. Uh, he also asked why are pragmatic observations of obvious multi-year shortfalls by this club labeled as negative by some pragmatic isn't negative. It's just describing what has actually happened as happening as opposed to what one wants to happen. Uh, I think this is kind of spurred by revs Twitter, which is overly negative right now. And there are some people that are a little glass half full somehow. Sean, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be positive about the team at this point in time. Um, so I, I, I think if you're a fan of the revolution, um, you have every right to be critical. And if you're a fan of the revolution, you want the team to be performing well. You want them to be competing for titles. And the level that they're performing at right now is unacceptable. Um, so if you actually do care, you, you probably should be calling out the team for the level that they're playing at right now and, and whatever it is you think is causing that. 
Yep, no, I absolutely agree. And I think we overall are, are trying to be positive, and we kind of feel like this team should be better than what the results are showing. Uh, but right now, I, I, there isn't a whole lot of positives and silver linings you can take from this team. So, uh, Joe asks us, <laughs> this is a great one, Sean, you're going to love it. Uh, why sign another Friedel guy when it just gives the new coach next year another player he won't want? We'll then have to wait a year for him to get his guys in and put his stamp on the team. We're in a vicious cycle. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a good point. And I think I made that point a bit when they brought in Namath uh, at the very end of Heap's tenure. Um, and, you know, that obviously didn't work out. And now he's, you know, crushing it elsewhere in the league. Um, but, you know, I think if this revolution's next signing is a European player that they're convinced is going to be, you know, good long term for this team and uh, is going to have the same kind of impact as, as a heel. Um, and is, you know, maybe just as much a Mike Burns guy as a Brad Friedel guy, they make that signing anyways. But uh, you know, I completely agree with the sentiment. Um, and you know, maybe that changes if they decide Friedel's going to get fired midseason because they're just performing that at that poor of a level. Um, but if, you know, Friedel's still the coach, I can't imagine them, you know, axing a signing, uh, that he's trying to make, but I completely get the sentiment here. Yeah, it's an interesting – you're right. The timing is very strange because it seems like Brad Friedel will obviously want to bring him in to save his job because I, I, I think it's fair to say he's on the hot seat if this season goes as poorly. You know, right, We're four points through seven games. I think someone uh, projected it out that they're on pace for 20 points this season. If they end the season with 20 points, you know, he, he's getting fired. I don't, I don't think there's any argument with that. But um, yeah, I mean he obviously wants to come in and save his job. Burns obviously probably want to come in and, and have his job saved as well. So it, it's interesting. Do you bring in this new guy? And I don't know. I, I think if they want to axe that signing and kind of cancel the transfer, which sounds like it's already been done and apparently is coming in May, uh, you know, Friedel's got to go out. So I, I'm not sure – you're right. It's a vicious cycle. They're kind of in that in-between phase that we had in the last year at Jay Heaps. Um, yeah, could lead to more disaster. Fun. Real MEMP uh, asks us, uh, what I really don't get about the Revs is that everyone talked about how there was, there was this new culture that Friedel was creating. Did that not happen? Is this is the new culture not working? Was it all BS? Sean, your thoughts? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think uh, what you see with Brad Friedel is very different than what you saw with Jay Heaps. I think Jay Heaps was a guy that was more of a player's coach and would defend his players and you know, generally, uh, with a few exceptions, wouldn't really throw him under the bus um, and created a culture that way that you know worked for a few seasons and you know, by the end of his tenure clearly wasn't working. Uh, Brad Friedel was quite the opposite. Um, very willing to hold players accountable publicly, um, not so much willing to hold himself accountable publicly. Um, and I think that the culture that he's created has made the team worse. I think they have a worse culture now than they did before he took over. Um, I do think the culture's changed. I just think it's changed for the worse. Um, so maybe it wasn't BS, but it was just a you know a bad a bad culture that Friedel was trying to create. Um, you know, talked about trying to make guys hate each other and not like the guys that are competing for their spots. Um, and you know, th they don't look like a team on the field that likes playing with each other for the most part. Uh, so maybe he succeeded and just, he's gotten what he wanted and it's not the right thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he brought in a new culture and I don't think the culture worked, especially didn't work towards the end of the last season where it seemed like he was, you know, at odds with his players and he was kind of, you know, <laughs> hammering him for a lack of effort. I mean, how many times have we heard him criticize the effort? Um, they don't seem to be having fun. They seem to be pretty miserable out there. Um, and, and I don't think Friedel is a guy that, like Jay Heaps, I, I think that they kind of respected Heaps and all he's done for the revolution. Um, I, I, I don't know if Brad Friedel has locker room. That's total speculation on my part. But they, they don't seem to be responding a whole lot 
Um, outside of that one, two to one victory against Minnesota, which I, I guess you could say was a response, but overall, it's I, I don't think that culture is working out. And I think Brad Friel has kind of made a little bit of adjustments. He has kind of toned down his uh, comments at halftime and, and after the game. He seems a little bit more uh, back a little bit. I, I, I think after the uh, comments about waiting for players at, at their cars. I, I think since then he's been a little more toned down, but yeah, uh, not not good. Uh, John Trainer asked us also on Brad Friedel, is Brad Friedel a bad coach or is he the worst coach? <laughs> you know, if I'm focusing on this season only, if you had asked me before this weekend, I would have said uh, Frank DeBoer might have been in the running for the worst coach um, because he had done less with Atlanta United than Friedel's done with the Revolution with a much more talented roster. Uh, but after this past weekend, I think there's a good case that Friedel is the worst coach currently in MLS. Um, you know, even looking at some of the terrible teams on the West, uh, you know, the money they spent this offseason on Carly's heel, um, the fact that he's had two years now to make this team in his own image. Um, it's It's been pretty terrible what we've seen from, from Brad Friedel as coach of the Revolution. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Um, you know, that you know, good start that they had under his tenure, uh, you know, really propped up his record at the beginning of, of his time here. And it's just been consistently getting worse. And, you know, since July of his first season, they, this team has been terrible. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny question. Is he a bad coach or the worst coach? And I think he's getting that from, uh, from Stephen Colbert's old segments that he would do when he would ask somebody if somebody's a bad president or the worst president. Um, but yeah, um, you could make a case for him being the worst coach. Rough. Uh, Wor- worst coach, like worst coach that I've seen um, coach the revolution since the nineties. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that, yeah, obviously, but I mean, it, it's kind of tough. Cause I, I mean, I, I think he kind of inherited a situation where you want need a little bit of a, a rebuild. Um, you, you kind of need a little bit of patience. And, and I mean, I'm not a huge fan of swapping out coaches every, you know, six months or every year. I, I think you need a little bit of time, but as you say, it seems like they're getting worse. We're in year two. He had a full off season to do what he wanted. Um, he brought in some players that he wanted. He's called this team, uh, the 2019 revs more of his team than last year's. So, you know, there, I, I don't know what excuses there are left. Maybe something about the DP will come out that, you know, there's a reason why the, the transfer was stalled or whatever, but there isn't a whole lot with, with the players that Brad Friedel has one, five and one is not very good. And, and uh, the bent musket too had a stat. I think they're nine, seven and five in their last 21 home games, uh, which is never good. So, uh, Renny Swan asked us, what is fun to watch about the Revs follow-up challenges, whether or not there are any answers after heel? Sean, what's fun? <laughs> well, he said heel, so I can't take that one. Um, you know, maybe Jill and Ibaba getting excited after he makes a block. Uh, that's that's about all I got. Cody Crawford redemption tour. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, There's that, a yeah. guy who fell right out of the 18. He's come back. He's kind of proven himself. I'm all for it. Uh, not, not exactly a Tiger Woods level com- comeback, but you know what? Something positive, so we'll we'll take it. And Dewan Jones, I, I like that. Yeah, he's you know good, good little player. You know, Justin Re- Justin Renix is healthy now. Justin Renix, Justin Renix is fine. He might be good. Maybe. Boy, we're really splitting hairs. Anyway, uh, Scott man, nineteen seventy eight. Let's kind of perk it up a little bit. Uh, what will it take to get rid of Mike Burns, Sean? Um, well, just as a friendly reminder for those that haven't been following the team for for very long, I believe it was two thousand eleven. Um, one of, if not the worst seasons in Revolution history in which the Revolution won a total of five games um, and 34 matches, which I think is about what they're on pace to win this year. Um, Mike Burns earned himself a promotion after that. Um, so I don't know. 
uh, last you know, place, I, uh, zero, one, would a one-win season get him fired? I don't know. Um, and I think if we're giving the organization the benefit of the doubt, I think they might classify what they did in 2011, even though they call it a promotion now, as more of a clarification of roles. Um, but it is it is kind of hilarious that after a five-win season um, for a roster that was progressively getting worse under his tenure, uh, that he got a promotion. So, I, you know... I would like to think that if they have another five-win season this year, that'll be the end of his tenure. Um, but I have no confidence in saying that. You know, I, I actually I'm going to be, I don't want to say more positive, but I, I think he, his leash is a lot shorter than what you think. Um, and, and I said earlier this in the offseason, before the season, I, I, I kind of said at the end of the year, this, or this will be Mike Burns' last season, because if the Revs miss the playoffs, I don't know what other excuses that they have. Um, the thing with Mike Burns, and we talk about Brad Friedel being on the hot seat, Brad Friedel has been here, you know, what, 12, 14 months? Mike Burns has been here forever. And I, I think if you fire Brad Friedel or if you talk about letting go of Brad Friedel, you have to kick out Burns too. I mean, it has to be an entirely new regime change. It should have been with Jay Heaps, to be perfectly honest with you. But if Mike Burns brings in another guy and fires him within two years, uh, I, I don't know – I, I don't know. I, I think you need to clean house in the front office first altogether and, and just start from the bottom and build up. Uh, so I, I think if Friedel is gone, I, I think Mike Burns is also gone. I actually think Burns would be fired or at least he should be fired before Brad Friedel. Um, it seems like there is a, some miscommunications there between the front office and uh, Brad Friedel. I think we've talked about that on, on some previous episodes too, where there's kind of some reading in between the lines and some comments. They don't seem to be on the same page in terms of what information to uh, leak out and, and kind of speak out uh, uh, publicly, like in terms of the DP. It seemed like Brad Friedel was kind of a little, had, had his feathers ruffled a little bit that uh, it was made publicly that they're trying to bring in another DP in the off season and then they didn't, didn't follow through on that. So um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I think if they don't make the playoffs, I still think if they don't make the playoffs, Mike Burns is gone. Um, and I, I don't think this is a playoff team right now uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, they're they're bad. But as you say, the teams that they should be competing with are even further ahead of them uh, than the, the teams that are uh, above them right now on the table. So, um, yeah, I, I think Dave's, the days are numbered for Mike Burns. So we'll see. Corey asked us, uh, if there was a blame pie, how would you break it up between ownership, front office, head coach and players? Sean, you want to take this one first? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really difficult one for, for me to answer. I think every one of those groups uh, deserves a good chunk of the blame. I think if you you know go up the chain and talk about accountability, that starts with ownership. Um, so I would give ownership the, the largest share of the blame because of the, the, you know, the one group that can actually have an impact on all of those areas. Um, you know, we've talked plenty of times before about how they, you know, haven't spent enough on players. Um, Heal was kind of an exception. Jermaine Jones was the exception before that. But other than that, they, you know, they're really behind the league in spending, um, to, to bring in top players. And despite the fact that, you know, New England and, you know, Boston in theory should be a, a top market, um, it is one of the, the largest markets. Um, you know, certainly we just talked about Mike Burns and the blame he deserves for, you know, many years of not doing enough to make this roster as, as good as it could be. And of course, some of that falls on him not having the, the money that he necessarily needs to spend to be competitive. But, you know, he has not made the most of the money that he does have. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot about Brad Friedel and his problems. Um, and I think we've talked a lot about the players and, you know, lack of effort earlier in the season and just the, you know, in general, lack of finding a way to make it work in, in Brad Friedel's system. Um, I would generally put the, the least amount of blame on the players. Maybe if I'm going to arbitrarily assign numbers here, I'll go 15% players, uh, what, 35% coach, that gets me to 50%. Um, uh, maybe I'll make it 30% coach, 30%, uh, 35% ownership, and then 
another 25% front office. I think I probably screwed up the percentages in there, but that's just very arbitrary. Um, at the end of the day, I think ownership deserves the, the most of the blame just because they're the ones in charge of all of it. Um, and the players deserve the least amount of blame, and there's no shortage of blame to go around with the front office and the head coach. See, I'm actually going to disagree with you. I, I mean, I don't think a whole lot of blame goes on the players. I'll say 5 to 10% for the players. I, the thing with ownership is they have actually expanded their budget in recent years. They've gone out and they've gotten you know some some expensive players. All those players are just terrible, and that lies on the front office. They've gotten Mancien. Uh, they brought back Juan Agadello. They brought in Zahibo. They brought in Zahomi. They brought in Carly Seal. Um, you know, those are all very expensive players. Uh, they brought in Christian Namath. Um, so, I mean, ownership has kind of opened up their wallet a little bit and they do seem to have a little bit more ambition than they did say three years ago. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the buck stops with them. So they, they certainly deserve a, you know, <laughs> they shoulder a lot of the blame. So I, I put maybe 20% on ownership. And then in terms of front office and head coach, I don't know how you want to split it up, but they're both pretty terrible right now. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think Mike Burns is very good at his job. We've talked about this endlessly. It seems like um, I don't think that they are able to make any any moves within MLS, which really kind of ties their hands up and they have to go out and overspend on uh, international players that are not very good. And I don't think Brad Furley has kind of shown us that he can coach the players that he has. I, I don't think he, he he's, you know, we question his man management and his motivation tactics. I think we also question his tactics strategically and, and nothing seems to really work out. So um, I don't know how you want to divide the remaining 75% between front office and head coach. I guess I would kind of split it right down the middle, but um, I, I don't place a whole, the players might deserve a little bit more blame than five, 10%, maybe 10 to 15%. Because I, I do think on paper that they are a little bit better, but uh, I, I think a lot of this blame lies at the um, uh, operations in the front office and, and at uh, Brad Fields feet. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, there's a good argument to make that Brad Friedel is not putting the players in the best position to succeed. Um, so because of that, I have trouble putting too much blame on them. And yes, there have been games this year where the effort hasn't been good enough. Um, so they certainly get deserve blame for that. And if you know if they're having trouble getting motivated, um, a lot of that falls on the coaching staff. But also, you have to be find a way to be self motivated if you're a professional soccer player too. Um, so yeah, some blame falls on them for that. My one, you know overlapping question or one question that I've had that I don't really know the answer to is who actually makes the decision to fire Mike Burns if you were to fire Mike Burns. And I don't know. My guess is that that might have to go to Kraft because I don't know that, you know, Brian Bolello is the guy that would do it. And I I could be wrong, but I just don't necessarily get the impression that he would be the one to do it if that were to happen, Um, which is why I, again, put more uh, on the ownership and and yes they have been spending more money but they're still you know every year at the bottom tier of the league in spending yeah no i, I agree with you and, and yeah i don't want to speculate who's in charge of firing burns i mean either way it's craft i feel like craft can either tell blo hey get rid of this guy and bring in someone who, who can do a little bit better um or you just fire them both so yeah no either way the buck stops with craft um but i i do think that i think there's a lot of uh people on Twitter that don't feel the crafts care at all. And and I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think the crafts are a little embarrassed that the revs are pathetic. Uh, <laughs> they, they aren't kind of at that standard, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously not a huge priority for them. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit more sympathetic than the revs to the crafts than most. Um, and that, I mean, that's not very much, but I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot bigger issues uh, than the ownership. I still think they're in somewhat of a holding pattern until they find a stadium in Boston, which, again, who knows if and when that's ever going to happen. Um, but I, I do have, you know, I do think that there's a lot of thought process going on there that, you know, why should we go out and spend a lot of money here to, to cultivate a fan base when, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be in Boston, we want to cultivate a fan base there. So what's the point of you know spending a lot of money now? We'll just, you know, three, four or five years 
maybe it's really going to be 20 years down the road when we get a stadium in Boston, uh, then go spend the money and, and rebrand this team and, you know, make it a whole new thing um, where right now there's, you know, kind of diminishing returns on, on spending a lot because uh, you don't intend to be in Foxborough long term. And, I, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, a lot of reason to think that that's where the, the ownership's head is at right now. And um, if you're a fan of the team, that's, you know, that's, that's a really cold comfort um, because there's really hasn't been much progress that we've seen publicly on getting a stadium. Yep. Hey, can I can I do a thirty second rant here? It's it, I agree with everything you said. I just want to have a quick thirty second rant. Something really grinds my gears Go for on it. Twitter. Okay. Okay. So I understand that a lot of people want a new owner. Great. And, and a lot of people don't care who it is. Great. Please, please, please. There. Are, I I know a lot of our listeners do this, but please stop saying John Henry. I don't want John. I think John Henry would be worse than Robert Kraft to own the refs. You know, everyone looks at the Red Sox winning the World Series and they look at Liverpool and figure that that John Henry can do the exact same thing with the Revolution. That is total crap. Look at what he did as the, the owner of the Marlins. He was pissed off that he didn't get a stadium down in Miami and he bailed within three years. He had no interest in investing in the Miami Marlins or the Florida Marlins, whatever they are called back then. He's he's not a small market owner. He's not in love with the game of soccer. He's in love with dollar signs. He's not going to invest the revolution. I understand you want a new owner. Stop saying John Henry. John Henry's not going to do crap for the revolution. He would be a terrible owner. That's it. That's all I have to say. I'm a huge Red Sox fan. John Henry is no. Pass. Stop. Stop saying John Henry. I know a lot of you do it. Please, 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 please. There's more than one rich guy in New England other than Robert Kraft. Would, choose anyone else. Wouldn't you like I to see them play? At, Henry the wouldn't you like to see them play Stop. at Fenway for a few years, though? You know, will I wait for a stadium? Do a uh, New York City FC and play at the, the baseball stadium? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like they do that. They wouldn't even make soccer lines. They just throw them on the field. They'd have to like play around the bullpens. There's, n- I, uh, yeah. I, I get why that people make that connection. But if you look at his 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 record with the with a small market team with the Florida Marlins, it was dreadful and everyone hated him. And he he didn't invest in the team. They were in the bottom three in salary all four years that he owned them. And then he had to beg MLB to get him into a bigger market. So no, not a not a fan of the John Henry thing. I understand why people make that connection. But man, that grinds my gears. I that would be <laughs> awful, awful. I know I know someone will tweet at us and 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 try to engage. And I'm not I, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But that's my logic. You know, you know, Mark Wahlberg said he's interested in owning a team. Much rather have Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I would rather have you could pretty much list any millionaire, and I'd be like, yeah, I'd take him over John Henry, the guy that owns the newspaper that literally takes a dump on soccer anytime it's in the news. Literally, I uh, anyway. Rob McDougal, uh, this is I know this is a troll question, but we're gonna go through it anyway. Why haven't the Revs been relocated to Austin yet? Um, <laughs> I I think I can just tackle this one really quick. Um, MLS is not going to abandon the Boston market. It's too big of a a market to have no teams in New England. Um, The Crafts are a original owner of MLS, so I I don't think Garber is going to force his hand anytime soon. Um, Just too big of a market to abandon. I I also don't think that there are – I think there are a few other teams like Real Salt Lake and San Jose and I don't know. I don't know what market you would want to – move the revolution out of but if you had to say miami let's just pick miami for you know kicks and giggles there um i think there are a hand if you were to relocate instead of expand there are teams like columbus and san jose and, and salt lake that you would move first uh other than the only team in new england uh and sean any any notes on that no you you can't be a professional sports league in you know in the united states and not have a team um, in the Boston area. So if they were to, to relocate the revs, it would have to be like a Columbus situation where they're, you know, a new ownership team is, group is coming in and it's just a technical relocation, um, and, and starting a new team with a new history and, and, and which, which they're not even doing in Columbus, but something along those lines, there's, there's no way you have a, you know, major league soccer without a, a team, uh, in the, the Boston area. 
Uh, yeah, no, I agree. And, and Providence. Providence also to a, a huge soccer market. Uh, Paul Gerard, also another trolling question. Uh, do you ever think of quitting and becoming a Bruins podcast? Um, I will say, Paul, actually, that Sean and I had a conversation yesterday. And uh, after that Revs lost, we were like, you know what? We should just talk about the Red Sox uh, on our next episode. And then the Red Sox lost two of four to the Orioles. So we just decided to stick to the revolution because that is somehow worse than what the revolution or what the Revs are doing right now. So uh, but Bruins, not our thing, I would say. No, no, Bruins aren't our thing. Celtics podcast would be kind of fun with all the uh, stupid drama that's gone around that team this year. I could, I could see doing that, but <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, for a uh, for a region that has two championships in the last what eight months, uh, we sure are in disarray. But uh, yeah, uh, hey, you know what? The, the Lightning though are uh, on their way out, so maybe the Bruins are favorite. I don't know. I don't really follow hockey, so uh, but I'll I'll take credit for the championship. I'll be there for the Stanley Cup bandwagon. Um, other news for the week: Andy Carroll was rumored to come to the Revs, and then he didn't. Uh, Sean, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if the Revolution want to go out and buy some guy that has you know, ankles that don't work, uh, they could probably spend a lot less than somebody else. I don't, I don't see, uh, you know, Andy Carroll, great player when he's healthy, but when is he healthy? Yeah, a guy with leg injuries on turf, uh, not a match made in heaven. I would his, say, so. his third ankle injury in like the past 16 months, um, he just had a serious ankle surgery. So um, I don't know about you, but I can't think of any guys that have serious ankle and knee injuries throughout their career and then get healthier when they're on in their 30s. Can you? No, no, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he needs to be on the TB12 method. <laughs> that could be it. Uh, we're going to do a quick, uh, we're, we're running long as usual. Uh, but I, I, I saw this tweet earlier, Sean. I figure we might want to give our thoughts on this, but I, I don't know if you saw it. But Sean Sweeney tweeted out a quick poll. Who would you think would be the top four contenders of current players if they took part in the uh, Boston Marathon? So top four revs who would do well in the marathon. Do you want to just pick four or do you want to do like a draft and see who's the better team? Uh, let's, let's do a draft. Okay. Do you want first or we'll do snake so you can have two or three. I'm, I'm going to go with the, the first and the fourth. <laughs> okay. You go first then. I, I'm going to take Carly's heel because he's got a surprising amount of endurance where he's literally like everywhere on the pitch. And those couple of games where he was playing as, you know, more of a, uh, two way central midfielder. I, you know, I, I would like to see the stat of how much ground he covered in those games. Okay, no, I, that the very good first pick. I mean, he's pretty much the only Revs player that's doing anything this season, so I, I, I don't blame you for going with him first. I'm going to go with the fastest guy on the team. I'm going to go with Somi. Uh, I think he's got the best wheels under him. He's not doing anything else, so he's going to be well-rested. Uh, so if he can last 26 miles, I, I mean, I don't know if anyone can match his pace. It, it just matters if he has the stamina, and, and you know, he can run for days. So I'm going to go with Gabriel Somi. I'm also – stop laughing. <laughs> Gabriel Somi's not terrible at anything. The one thing he can do is run. I don't know why you're laughing at me. Uh, the next pick I'm going to go with, it might be a little surprising. I'm going to go with Dewan Jones. Dewan Jones, we heard a lot about his athleticism coming out of college. Uh, you know, young guy, he's got, he doesn't have a lot of miles on his legs. So I, I, I think he's going to be uh, a good choice. He's kind of at his athletic peak right now. So I, I give Dewan Jones uh, as my number two spot. I mean, I'd be curious to see Dewan Jones' stamina because I would definitely take him in a four-yard dash. But marathon, I don't know. Um, so my last pick uh that's this is good no we're down. doing four we're doing we're doing four this oh we're doing four one. we're doing four we're each doing four. oh we're, we're doing, doing four. all right, all right, all right. I'll, uh, i'm gonna go with andrew Frow. he's another guy that has a, a lot of pace and uh has covered a lot of ground in his career so i think he's got the endurance to get it done okay and who and you got another pick coming and up. then and then my next pick is going to be brandon by another guy uh, in the athleticism uh, category right there alongside dewan jones yeah i was gonna take brandon by let me think about this let me think about this uh, that was my pick. That was my pick. That was my pick. I'll go Tayon Buchanan. I'm going to go with the 40 yard dash guys and just hope that one of them can run uh, long distance. Tayon Buchanan too. He's kind of got that runner's body. He's tall, lanky. 
Taeyeon Buchanan has definitely run cross country for the majority of his life. That I, I don't have any actual information to confirm that, but he's he's definitely got some wheels on him. Um, after that, I'm going to go with Diego. I'm going to go with Diego. I think Diego, you know, he looks like a, a long distance runner. What, what else? You got one more pick here, Sean. Nobody said Luis Caicedo, right? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think he's a, a solid pick based on what we saw last year of his ability to like, also cover a lot of ground, just like we've seen from from Heel in a few games this year. Yeah, Luis Caicedo is actually a pretty good pick. Actually, now that you say that, I uh, kind of regret that one. But, I'll, you know, hey, live and learn. I was put on the spot. I probably should have uh, planned this a little bit more. On Twitter, I said Matt Turner, Matt Turner, Matt Turner, and Matt Turner. Uh, and Paul Gerard pointed out that Matt Turner is probably the only person that has a FIFA rating slower than Scott, uh, than Scott Caldwell. He has a 38 speed and a 39 acceleration. So, uh, obviously, Matt Turner is going to go undrafted uh, among our picks. So, uh, Sean, any final thoughts to bring us home? I mean, the Revolution just have a very, very important game coming up uh, next weekend against the New York Red Bulls, who, as you mentioned, are in a similar situation uh, to Atlanta United. Uh, And, you know, this last weekend was a must win. Uh, Next weekend is another must win. And then Wednesday against Montreal following that is another must win. So uh, Revolution need to get maximum points out of their home games. Um, You know, I I don't know what Bradfield does to turn things around at this point. Um, But next weekend is another must win against another team that's kind of got their backs against the wall and is really underperforming. Pretty crazy that we're already into the stretch of uh, must win games. But uh, you know what? That's what happens when you hit the summer slump. It's just we're hitting a little bit early this year. Uh, So, uh, yeah, yeah. Must win. I agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, we're 20% of the call- way through the season. <laughs> I know, I know. Calling for rain next weekend, too. I don't know if that plays in the Revolution's hands or not. Uh, but I don't know. Hope They need three points. They, they, I would say they need three points in both those games. As you said, uh, you need six out of nine points on a homestand like this. And, yeah, <laughs> it's not looking good. It's, but anyway. it's always fascinating when the Revolution play the Red Bulls because the Red Bulls, um, at least last year, were the team that did what Brad Friedel wanted to do, but did it a hundred times better than Brad Friedel could get the Revolution to do it. Um, they were the best pressing team in the league last year. Uh, they're struggling this year, and I don't know if you know it's going to be the case on on Saturday. But I always find it fascinating when the Revolution play the Red Bulls because that is the team um, that last year really did what you know Brad Friedel was trying to get the Revolution to do. Yep, yep. And there should be a note. There's a bit of a note too. The Red Bulls are without Kaku, so good news for everyone sitting in the front row. Anyway, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap, and please also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, Also, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We always appreciate the feedback. Uh, Sean, where can people follow you? You can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. You mentioned Kaku. It's going to be an interesting uh, midweek decision-making from the disciplinary committee with him and with uh, Annie Baba and potentially Caldwell. Yeah, that is true. There could be some uh, retroactive decisions made halfway through. I don't know how. I, I I assume that if they don't they don't suspend Jaleel Anibaba, that they just flat out did not look at the videotape. I still don't know how that wasn't a red. But anyway, uh, Revs will host the uh, Red Bulls as we said le- next week. Uh, that game will be at Foxborough next Saturday at seven thirty. Prepare for rain, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week to break it all down. I think allegedly, I'm not totally sure just yet. But until then, uh, thank you for listening and go Revs.